Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, it seems Donald Trump isn't aware of what he can say and what he can't say, and has got himself in trouble again. Orange Shirt Day. Was it not supposed to be a holiday? What happened? And the Ontario Cannabis Corporation lost $42 million in the last fiscal. How does that happen? I thought we were supposed to make that much. The details coming up in the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. This is just as, uh, as bizarre as it gets in regard to the President of the United States. Uh, this started with uh, a phone call, I believe it was last July, with uh, the President of the United States and the President of Ukraine. And uh, I guess in limbo was uh, uh, some military aid that was going to the Ukraine from the United States. Uh, It was delayed for whatever reason. And Donald Trump places the phone call and basically uh, tries to get the Ukraine president to dig up dirt on Joe Biden's son, who, of course, uh, Joe Biden is his major uh, competitor in the in the U.S. election, next U.S. election, if, of course, he gets the nomination. Uh, dig up business on uh, Joe Biden's son in in the Ukraine, of which it doesn't appear that there's really any um, any validity to to any of these accusations, uh, and um, and the documents that have been released suggest by the White House suggest that uh, in fact Donald Trump was trying to somehow finagle finagle a deal where uh, uh, he could get the Ukraine president to dig up some dirt on Joe Biden and his family that would obviously help Trump during the campaign. Uh, People started questioning Trump about this. I did nothing wrong. The phone call was perfect. Called it a perfect phone call and, and everything like that. And uh, we didn't really see any transcripts from the call, but a series of notes about the call. And uh, after they came out, uh, people held that up and said, well, look here, what you you did there, that's that's not allowed. That's wrong. Um, And again, the president continues to call this, uh, make reference to this phone call as being perfect. To which uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi says he didn't even know it was wrong. Describing the phone call, uh, uh, Trump, in which the president suggested the documents would exonerate him. So, again, Trump made the White House release these, thinking that it would get him off. But all it did was confirm what he did was wrong. And as Pelosi said, he, he doesn't seem to grasp that what he was doing was wrong. And then over the weekend, uh, the tweets start flying and, you know, he wants to face his his accuser and so on and so forth. And it's just all gotten really ugly. And the sad part is it's all self-inflicted. This was all the president's doing. He did this to himself, which we see time and time again. Let's bring in Michael Trogott, Professor Emeritus of Communication Studies, Political Science, uh, University of Michigan, and he is with us now. Michael, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Good to be with you, Scott. It must be incredibly frustrating for the Republican Party to have Donald Trump continually shoot himself in the foot. Well, at one level, you uh, you would think it would be very frustrating, Uh, But there's almost no uh, elected Republican officials who are speaking up and telling him to knock it off. He created this problem, did he not? 
Well, uh, you know, the Democrats have been concerned on several fronts about uh, actions that the president has taken. Uh, and, of course, that was the basis for the investigation by Robert Mueller. But Mueller's uh, report uh, was so long and so complicated because it involved so many things that he did, it didn't take hold really in the public. But the whistleblower's report uh, centers on one single event, uh, which is much easier to comprehend, and then the release of the transcript uh, or, the, uh, or, or, or the partial transcript of the call uh, gave the public a lot of information about what happened, as well as members of the Congress. And that's when uh, re- Democrats decided this was worthy of an impeachment inquiry. Why would the White House relieve, uh, release information that, that uh, was detrimental to this? Well, first of all, they obviously didn't think it was, because, as you indicated, the president described uh, the conversation as perfect. And he thought that this was a justification of uh, his perspective. I think fundamentally what it comes down to is that he doesn't have a strong sense of what appropriate or inappropriate behavior is. And so he didn't see any, any conflict or any danger in releasing this document. How does the White House get him out of this? Well, it's too late to get him out of this uh, in the sense that uh, now a formal inquiry has started. So he has to switch to uh, essentially what we would call defense mode. You know, the the Congress has a great deal of uh, initiative in how it pursues this. And the House will act as a kind of a grand jury, assembling evidence and deciding whether to uh, construct articles of impeachment to pass on to the Senate. So the process has already begun. The train has left the station. And now what he has to do is think about what his best defense is in terms of additional evidence that he can provide that will uh, make... uh, only a minority of the members of the House support impeachment. Are the Democrats caught between a rock and a hard place here because Nancy Pelosi doesn't really want to start impeachment proceedings, but she's in a position where she can't avoid this? Well, I wouldn't describe it that way. I, I think... In terms of the Mueller report, she was opposed to impeachment uh, or or an impeachment inquiry because she thought that it would be too diffuse and it would be a big distraction. And it was also pretty clear that uh, the president wanted to use uh, a Democratic impeachment inquiry as part of his campaign strategy to mobilize his base. Yeah. But once this uh, relatively simple issue of uh, leaning on uh, the president of uh, Ukraine to try to dig up dirt on uh, Joe Biden and his son uh, became public, then her position switched. And she's now, I think, quite strongly in favor of the inquiry, at least, you know, rounding up information or evidence and seeing where it leads. 
Uh, that being said, uh, most of the time, uh, well, I shouldn't say that, but, but but certainly this this can come back and bite the Democrats. Um, if this doesn't get through the Senate, what's the sense? Well, uh, we, we should begin by acknowledging it's it's not very likely to get through the Senate unless mm-hmm. we learn more uh, than we know right now. I think kind of like uh, the incident with Richard Nixon in 1974, it could turn out that the cover-up would be worse right. than the initial claim uh, itself. But uh, the the risk for the Democrats is that the president and his supporters are able to portray this activity as politically motivated, and that he can use this to strengthen his reelection campaign, as yeah. opposed to the potential that this could weaken it. So, is he happy about this? He loves divisiveness. He loves a good fight. Is he happy with this? Well, we can't we can't tell uh, really. I mean, this is you know less than a week old in a process that's liable to take uh, you know th- three months or so f- for the Congress. Um, and the issue really is uh, how strong his defense could be and how effectively he can defend himself. And it's also too early uh, to know that. There are some indications that he could be in trouble because uh, the, the, the first person uh, to warn him about these conspiracy theories that he's promoting went public yesterday and told the president not to believe this story. But he, he continued to pursue it, and in the conversation uh, with President Zelensky of the Ukraine, he tried to make this uh, deal in ex- uh, of exchanging foreign aid for information on the Bidens. Uh, can, can that ever be proven? Uh, that would obviously be uh, the smoking gun needed for impeachment. Can that be proven, though? Well, uh, again, we don't know exactly. I mean, uh, he... he uh, he can't just push a button and say, hold up the foreign aid. He must have had conversations with people. Yeah. And it'll be up to the Congress, uh, to the Intelligence Committee, through uh, interviews and subpoenas of documents and so on, to see how much of this was recorded. It'll also have something to do with uh, interviews, because... The question of intent, I think, will come up inevitably, and people will have to be asked either what the president told them or what they thought the president was saying. Uh, your thoughts on the uh, the president's tweets and wanting to face his accuser? Well, that's completely contrary to the law that we have in the United States uh, about whistleblowers. And um, it'll be interesting to see what arrangements uh, the congressional committees make to interview the whistleblower and to maintain the whistleblower's uh, anonymity and privacy. But uh, the, 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 the president has no right, no legal right, to speak to the whistleblower, and it would be contrary or antithetical to the law for him to do so. Why does he need to face the whistleblower when the White House released the notes regarding the transcript? 
Well, doesn't uh, that won't won't that tell us as much as what a? Well, I'm sure the the whistleblower would give you more detail, but at the end of the day, hasn't he pretty much admitted what he did wrong with those notes from the White House? Uh, I don't think this is about uh, you know the legal status of evidence. I, I think this is related to the fact that the president. Uh, views himself as a very successful bully. And yeah. if he could face this person uh, personally, he could, uh, by, by some unknown means, uh, get them to recant or to revise their uh, hmm. complaint. Uh, and actually accuse this person of spying on the president. How, how are we supposed uh, yes, to... Yes, or, or else the informants uh, to the whistleblower, he, uh, he, he might have accused of being spies. It's unclear. But this feeds into his general uh, uh, notion, his theory, the theory of his original campaign about the deep state and uh, his vow to uh, root out these, these particular people. And this was clear... I think, in the comments of Stephen Miller yesterday in his uh, Sunday television interview. Uh, how are Americans uh, interpreting this, uh, especially when they see tweets such as they saw over the weekend? Uh, a, new poll, a new poll out says that about half the Americans, half of Americans, uh, 49% approve of the White House uh, formally starting impeachment inquiry into Trump. Yeah, Sorry, Congress. approve yeah. of the House, rather, uh, right. formally starting impeachment into right. Trump. Uh, is the tide changing here? Well, uh, on the one hand, the tide must be inevitably changing because of the disclosures. But it's very difficult to uh, interpret polls on this issue for a couple of reasons. First, The first of which is, of course, it's rapidly developing and any new information in the media, you know, will have an effect on these opinions. And secondly, uh, we're in this very polarized period in American politics where uh, th- this uh, 49% is about 80% of Democrats and about, you know, 20% of uh, Republicans with independents about evenly divided. Yeah. So the real question is, just as with regard to the members of Congress, when will the Republicans decide that enough is enough yeah. if, in fact, they do? Uh, did Donald Trump even know what he was doing? Did he realize that was wrong? I mean, I, I find it fascinating what, what uh, House Speaker Pelosi said. He didn't even know that it was wrong, describing the phone call from Trump in which the president suggested the documents would exonerate him. So he thought that releasing these would help. Well, first of all, I mean, I think, you know, based upon his business uh, experience and his history in the real estate business in Manhattan, we know that he's a very transactional person. So given that he has a strong interest in re-election, it's not surprising that he was trying to exert levers uh, to increase or enhance his prospects of, of re-election. And because of this conspiracy theory, he, he believed that one of the keys uh, lies somewhere in the Ukrainian government, whether it was physically a server or it was, you know, a network of uh, Ukrainian officials. So 
so that part is not too surprising. Uh, but I think the the more fundamental question goes to his sort of ethical and moral grounding and his understanding of what it means to be the president of the United States. So it's it's not so much a lack of knowledge, it's just lack of moral grounding. I, I, I think so. That's my own view. Because obviously the staff would be there to tell him you can't do this. Well, you have to understand, of course, uh, which I'm sure that you do, that uh, he can be briefed and prepped all the staff wants, but when he picks up the telephone, he's on his own. Yeah, yeah. Um, in regard to the text, it almost sounds, I think you used the word bully, uh, it almost sounds threatening. How does that perceived? Is that perceived as, you go get him, Don, or is it, this guy's out of control. I guess it depends on who you ask, doesn't it? Yes, it's a, it's yeah. a, this is one of the areas in which, you know, this kind of part, partisan prism comes into play. Uh, but um, the independents, I think, the political independents are going to see this as inappropriate behavior first, and the Republicans are going to be the, you know, the last to come around. The Republicans are more likely to see this as self-defense, you know, at an uh, almost appropriate level. Why does Donald Trump still have Rudy Giuliani speaking for him? Well, they go back a fair uh, uh, distance in Manhattan, and I think he probably thinks of uh, Rudy Giuliani as a very reliable supporter. He, he may not be, you know, completely enchanted with everything that he says, but he knows that the tone and direction of his comments will always be supportive. And so, uh, you know, there's a sense in which he has to take some bad along with the good. Is there any reason to believe the impeachment inquiry will, will end up any differently than the Mueller report did? Uh, we don't know this for sure because I think as Nancy Pelosi uh, understands, uh, it has to main has to stay focused on a very simple agenda that the public can understand. Because in the end, the real issue is how much faith and confidence the public has in the Congress doing its its work. Um, so if they begin to wander and add charges, for example. Uh, or if they revert back to the Mueller report in any way, I think they'll be in trouble. But if they can stay uh, focused on uh, just this phone conversation and the offer, and then uh, it's also important to remember the the potential cover-up of the offer by taking the transcript of the conversation off the regular uh, computer network and putting in a putting it in a highly secure one, mm-hmm. uh, then I think that they could be successful. Michael Trogott has been with us, Professor Emeritus of Communication Studies and Political Science, University of Michigan. Michael, always fascinating. Thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Good to chat. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Today marks Orange Shirt Day. What is the importance of this day? Was it not initially supposed to be a holiday? But what happened? And did the election 
the upcoming election, have something to do with all of this. Let's bring in Jerrica Frazier, Shea Teacher, Hamilton Regional Indian Center, and the Shea stands for Strengthening Hamilton's Aboriginal Education, and Jerrica is with us now. Jerrica, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. No problem. So was today supposed to be the first holiday of Orange Shirt Day? Um, I don't, I know it was proposed. Um, I know it wasn't, I don't think it was passed, but I think that people had different ideas of whether or not it should be a holiday or not. And, you know, for us, we all, I I teach uh, a secondary school program. And so students come to school and we talk about Orange Shirt Day. We participate in events. So coming to school is a good thing at times because it's for education, right? So I think that, uh, there was, talk of it becoming a holiday just like you know Ontario's had it for Remembrance Day talking about it that should become a holiday but as far as I know it wasn't passed um, and that it's no longer I don't think being considered um, but yeah I, I think that there's merits for both arguments that it should be or shouldn't be for us I, I know in, in education that means that we extend another holiday kind of means uh, a longer school year yeah so so apparently uh, it has to do with the election as well, um, because the election uh, and the writ was dropped and the, the, the government was prorogued before that, that, uh, that that's when the legislation would have died. So in other words, it just it was there, it was supposed to happen, and then just because the election was called, it never got through mm-hmm. uh, the process before, before the government uh, closed down. Do you know if there's any chatter of them revisiting this and, and once the election and, and such is settled, uh, do you think this will come back? Because I understand it was initially uh, uh, an NDP uh, politician that brought it forth, but it was uh, accepted by all. So do you think there's a future for this uh, after the election? I do. I think that it's always in, in talks of, of giving a day for that holiday, because as you know, the National Aboriginal Day is not a, is not a recognized holiday um, for people to have time off, like a statutory holiday. So we're missing a day in the calendar for such things. So we still go to work. Um, some organizations take the day off, but not all do. I think that it will be brought up again. And depending who wins the election, whether that's part of their mm-hmm. um, their campaign or not, um, depending on in people trying to get Indigenous votes and get Indigenous people out to the polls, I think that it becomes that's where it kind of becomes a, a, a momentum builder for some people. Um, but other people, I think, might not put that in their forefront of their mm-hmm. election campaign, depending on um, what their kind of their outlook is about social justice issues, racism, murder of missing Indigenous women. So depending on their their outlooks on and perspectives on those, those things, we'll see whether or not uh, Orange Shirt Day comes to the table or not. Uh, obviously, we had this discussion around Remembrance Day as well. Should you, in your opinion, should this be a holiday, a day off, or is it a day to be in the classroom? I think um, everybody has a different opinion on it. I think that if people participate in events, of course, it's, it's an important day off, just like when we do Remembrance Day parades. Uh, and it's a federally recognized holiday. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, the Friendship Center that I work in, uh, it's like Remembrance Day is a day off for them. Mm-hmm. Um, but Orange Shirt Day isn't. So I think that there's always merits to both. I, I am happy to provide programming and education so that students can come in and learn about it. Mm-hmm. Um, all of our students are Indigenous, so it's part of our history. It's part of it's woven kind of into all the parts of ourselves when it comes to our histories. Uh, no matter if, if our grandparents or great-grandparents attended residential school, we are still dealing with the aftermath of that trauma um, and how people were affected 
all differently by the Indian Act and what it meant for our families and where they could and could not live and and how they could grow up. Um, So I think that if students are still learning about it, I'm seeing a huge change in having elementary schools and secondary schools participate in Orange Shirt Day. It's gaining a lot of momentum and that it's better to have students who learn about it than never hear about it at all. Hmm. And it should be part of the regular class anyways, that it should be uh, integrated, learning about residential schools should be integrated into history um, but also talking about social justice and, c- and current events. I don't think it's part of history. I think it is um, something that we see the aftermath of every day with in our own lives. So I think it's important to learn about it. And I want people to have a space to learn about it too, beyond just the day. So <laughs> even if it was made a holiday, it has to be incorporated into education. Let's talk more about the significance of uh, Orange Shirt Day, its origins, how it started. What's the story behind Orange Shirt Day? Um, Orange Shirt Day started out of um, a residential school survivor who told their story. uh, Her name was Phyllis, that she was not able to wear um, her orange shirt in residential school, that it was taken from her and always symbolized, you know, that um, her, her freedom and her childhood was taken from her at a very young age when she went to residential school. So when we educate people and people wear orange shirts today, it's for Phyllis and for the survivors who um, lost a huge part of their childhood. But they also show us all the time how resilient they, they can be and for the ones who came home. So we also have to acknowledge that some people didn't come home mm. um, and that that's part of that legacy as well is that many of the children were malnourished, they were mistreated, they were abused, and so they didn't ever reunite with their parents. Um, so Phyllis's story reminds us that of what happened, but also it, it also gives us the space to, to learn about um, what survivors have been so open with telling their story. So because they went to the TRC and were able to share with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission what had happened to them, it took their bravery and strength to, to expose what had happened um, through the 150 years of residential schools operating to the public. Because hmm. for many years, people did not believe these stories. Hmm. Uh, not a holiday yet. Uh, hopefully with politics, that will change moving forward after the election. Um, uh, what, uh, what does happen? What is the significance of this, of this day in schools? How is it celebrated? Um, for everybody, I think it's different. Um, for my class, because it's an Indigenous classroom, we probably don't celebrate it the same way because we're talking about our lived history and lived experiences. Um, so today we we went we actually uh, brought in somebody to help out and, and bead orange shirts, pins for our class. Um, so our students participated in that in the last two days. And talking about, we talked about our experiences with it. Um, so whether we have students whose great-grandparents or grandparents went to residential school or that we weren't necessarily impacted by our, our parents or grandparents attending, but that we're still, we still felt the aftermath or the distrust in the education system as a result. Uh, we also talked about uh, how it caused a lot of our grandparents and great-grandparents to be very Christian. We don't, not all the students necessarily understood why that happened. Um, so it gives us um, a time to talk about all the different kinds of effects that happened after uh, people attended or the community members attended and they were impacted by that. In, in mainstream school, um, I think a lot of people are bringing in Indigenous literature. They're bringing in survivors. They're having uh, students relate to that experience and not just thinking this happened so long ago, but seeing a survivor in front of them talk about their story um, and educate 
young people about it, they're having that firsthand experience. So schools are being really mindful about how to approach this day. Hmm. And they're thinking not just reading a story um, without context, that they're, they're making it into a much much longer than just one day. So I've seen, uh, I'm really active on Twitter, but seeing people um, share exploring survivor stories through children's literature, watching films and documentaries, going to the Woodland Cultural Center, which is our uh, local site for the Mohawk Institute that ran up until 1970 in Brantford, Ontario. Uh, schools are taking trips there to have a, a firsthand experience of seeing what this really looked like uh, and not just reading it in a history book. What has been the response when you take this to mainstream schools? My students have actually educated other schools in the past and students, for the most part now, I would say said like five years ago, students didn't really know a lot about it, especially elementary school students. The content is, is really, um, it's hard to hear. So I think some teachers shied away from bringing it up to younger people thinking it was too much for them to handle. But we have amazing Indigenous authors who have um, told these stories in such a graceful and meaningful way. What makes it any more difficult than any other tragedy yeah, in history? I think, I think people are nervous about doing it wrong. That's because it's always, ours? Because it's us? Do you think yeah, so? Yeah, sometimes there's, there's a, you know, you don't want people to feel guilty, but we all are part of that solution, right? It's mm-hmm. not that we were the people who were there at the time, but if in order to fix the relationships between Indigenous and non-Indigenous people, we all have to be part of that solution. And we can't shy away from it. We can't shy away from what happened. Rather, we have to tackle that truth in order to get to that reconciliation. Because a lot of people talk about reconciliation, but we really have to examine the, the truth of what happened and see it for what it is and not skirt around it because it doesn't allow for proper healing to happen, but it also doesn't allow for the, that relationship building to occur. Do people, people don't really know. Do people realize that kids were, you know, stripped from their home, their culture, put into a situation unfamiliar to them? It, do, do they still not know that? I think there's a part of the population that doesn't know that. Yeah. No. I think also in our life, too, we have um, the opportunity to be in in school um, and in school is a place where you learn about much of what happened and if you don't have opportunities to be in education um, you might not turn on the news you might not you know put yourself no, makes sense, in that yeah. position if you know and I think that at the same time most people should turn on the news or google something so I think everybody has an opportunity to learn now way more than ever you don't have to take out a book at the library you can pull anything up on your phone and type in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and and learn about it. Um, I think we have a lot of learning still to do that people might think of only Indigenous history as being residential schools when there's so many. You know other what? That, that brings happen. you bring up another uh, another point, Jerica. How do you how do you keep the education moving and not get stuck on the residential schools? I, yeah, I think that's a, a big problem, too. It, it becomes a, only a story about trauma and not how... And not um, the good things or, or the, the positive things. things, yeah. Yeah, and the resiliency of, of the survivors who paid for their own Truth and Reconciliation Commission. They didn't take the money. They wanted this to be so that people could learn about it forever. They wanted something set um, set up so like the, the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation now is it's online and that people have access to the documents even to secure the documents alone was 
really difficult for some people because the churches would not give it give over the documents. Um, so all of that, that's it's about balance. Uh, when I teach about residential schools, I always teach about how much the survivors went through to prove that their story was not only true, but to be compensated for it, and then still take that compensation and reinvest it into education for all so that they could repair this relationship. Like, that's not easy to do. And I think people might forget about that because um, it, it does focus on the trauma of it, um, which it should, but it's, it's a balance, too, of not just making all of our stories um, somehow about trauma and poverty. Because that can't be, when I, as an Indigenous person, when I was an Indigenous student, that's not all the things I wanted to hear about my people. Hmm. Good you know, point. so yeah. it's yeah. really important to think about those kids in the class and what they're what they're thinking about their parent, their grandparent, or themselves, and like how am I phrasing their history? And I think uh, a good way to think about it is that um, Nancy Rowe, who's out of Mississauga of the Credit, um, she's a, she's a big advocate for education and works on uh, FNMIEAO, which is a Indigenous organization trying to work as for in education and and make people aware of um, these truths and provide them resources that she says, you know, don't teach, you don't have to teach about culture, but you have to teach the facts and the histories that have happened. Mm. And I think that's a great way for people to think about not when they're too scared to teach it. It's an entry point of like, you, you can teach the facts. You don't have to teach about, uh, indig- you don't have to teach an indigenous person about who they are in their cultural piece, but you can tell them what had happened. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Just, I mean, like any history class, here's here's what happened. Um, yeah. I don't know how to ask this question delicately, but I'll do the best I can. Did people way back when, when this was all going down, did they think they were helping? I don't think so. <laughs> I like, think but they, at the end of the day, could did they not think they were drunk like whether it was right or wrong and well it's obviously wrong um but do you think they were trying to do the right thing do you think they were trying to help even though they were incredibly wrong i think there are cases where people describe it as being in uh, a positive experience it's few and far between um that it was a way to get them out out of poverty or to have food in their bellies but the reality was that when they went to the schools they didn't feed them any more than what they were getting at home. Yeah. There's very few positive remarks on it. Um, and I would count that up to be when I think about um, the John, it's Johnny McDonald who actually was um, speaking about, you know, to try to kill the Indian, save the, save the man, yeah. save the child. Yeah. Right. So I think that you have that. As you can't argue with wording like that. Can you? No. And yeah. I think that that was what it was meant to do. And I, yeah. I, I don't think that there was any, um, positive aspects to it that mm. were trying to do anything but assimilate Indigenous people so that they would just become like everybody else. Maybe that's me just trying to justify how it all happened and understand it. Is that what it is? Is it white people just trying to freaking understand it? I think there's always an aspect of people thinking that um, the teachers who went there were trying to, uh, who wanted to, wanted to educate people and wanted to help. And there, there are stories about Indigenous people even working in residential schools across the country because they knew what it was like and they knew how isolating it was. Mm-hmm. So I agree that those people were probably trying to help. And there are cases of people remembering uh, really positive experiences with certain teachers. Um, but we know for the majority, it just wasn't like that. And it was so underfunded that yeah. many students never experienced like a true education 
they're ha- they were in a half-day system, so half the day was manual labor and half of the day was hmm. academics, but it was in a second language. So the how much you could acquire, um, because your first language might be Cree, Ojibwe, Mohawk, whatever it was, but you're learning all in English, you weren't going to acquire a ton because you just didn't have enough instruction time. And when your most of your time was spent um, caretaking for the underfunded school, you weren't bound to, to be able to learn a lot or then go into mainstream education. Hmm. Um, and at that time, through the Indian Act, like you, were, you couldn't become a doctor, a lawyer, or a teacher. You couldn't even gather in a group. Yeah. And you couldn't hire a lawyer for any of your cases. So all those things were banned from you. So you weren't able to, and if you did want to become any of those professions, you would have to give up your status. So hmm. all these things were, like, they were orchestrated, and there was a, an architect of it in a yep. sense that it made it impossible. And if you were to succeed, you'd be punished anyways because you'd be, like, pretty much t- told you couldn't come back to your community. Hmm. So I think it was... Sometimes I talk to people and they think that this is some um, conspiracy theory of yeah, mine. No. Uh, but no, it was really calculated. Yeah, yeah. And you can't ignore that. Uh, if people want to find out more about Orange Shirt Day, where can we go, Jerrica? Um, there's Orange Shirt Day. Uh, I think it's orangeshirtday.org. Uh, locally, um, the Brantford, in Brantford, um, the Mohawk Institute and the Woodlands Cultural Center, they, sh- they sell Orange Shirt Day t-shirts every year. And part of that money goes to the State of the Evidence campaign. And that money is helping to restore the former residential school into a museum for for education purposes. So I always tell people to buy their T-shirts there so that we can support that campaign. Hmm. Jerrica Frazier has been with us, Shea Teacher, Hamilton Regional Indian Center, the Shea standing for Strengthening Hamilton's Aboriginal Education. Jerrica, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Good luck. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Fascinating story in regard to the whole cannabis industry. And we know, uh, you know, how this has trans, uh, transformed over the last year and, and uh, the legalization of, of recreational marijuana and such. And uh, obviously this was designed uh, to take... Um, uh, try to get the black market uh, out of this industry and provide some sort of regulation, some sort of health and, and safety regulations as well, and and obviously make some money, get a piece of this, get a piece of this cash cow. Well, according to sources familiar with the situation, in other words, we don't know who, <laughs> Ontario is considering, or who gave us the information, Ontario is considering an alternative way to get cannabis to people due to the loss of $42 million in the latest fiscal year. Are there options available? What are their options? And how did this happen when this was supposed to make money? Let's bring in Dan Malik, health sciences professor, Brock University, author of Try to Control Yourself, The Regulation of Public Drinking in Post-Prohibition Ontario. He's with us now. Dan, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Hey, Scott, no problem. I thought this was supposed to be a gold mine. How did we lose $42 million? Well, um... I, I, let me answer that for you, Dan. Well, the government's involved. <laughs> well, uh, no, not entirely. Uh, part of it is uh, the, the, the cost of starting up. Uh, part of it is the cost of changing from one system to another. Remember, there was supposed to be an OCS retail stores run stores, by the government, yeah. and they were looking at um, you know, stores, storefronts and things like that. And there was, I think, I think the, uh, the indication is about a million dollars in in fees or fines or something 
um, uh, lost their... Uh, oh, because they had because the stores had for the stores. Ontario cannabis stores, yeah. and then they decided not to go with them. Yeah, mm-hmm. and so, I mean, and this is... And then different changes and charges. It's actually, it's not just one blanket, 42 million. Right. It was a whole bunch of different things that added up to 42 million. You know what I mean? Like different costs and that. And it's like any business starting up, you're, you're, they create the whole, the, the new online system that they created had costs to it and all of these things. So so that's how uh, it was lost. And the change in, in direction was, was an issue as well, along with the fact that the simple fact that I don't think they're talking about too much is that because of so much sort of chaos in the retail system in Ontario around October 17th and forward, people didn't shift to cannabis, uh, legal cannabis sales. I mean, a lot of people did. There was, I think, um, 64 million or something in sales. I can't, I can't remember the revenue numbers. Um, but uh, there, you need to wait for the shift to happen. And when people couldn't get their hands on the legal stuff, a lot of people stuck with the illegal market, so they didn't get the full benefit of people buying legally. Right. So even uh, the product shortage must have played into this. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah the, the legal product shortage, right? Yeah. Because there was a lot of uh, product still in the black market, which kept people away, especially you know day one when people were thought they were going to get their product in a couple days, and then it turned into two to three weeks or even longer. Um, that would keep some customers from going in that direction yet, right? And and we've seen shifts since then, but initially, you know, this is, we are not one year away from when it opened up. And uh, so, I mean, if we look a couple years down the road without making any changes, we will, I no doubt, see that it was profitable. So this isn't raising red flags for you? This is no. just growing pains, no yeah. no pun intended. Yeah, it's growing pains. Uh, yeah, it, <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's 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 the the it's the the fact of starting up a big new business along with the especially in Ontario the the, the change of direction and some of the uncertainty. Yeah. In the end, would this save more because Ontario's not in the business of bricks and mortar stores? Uh, I, uh, Possibly. Um, it, it might save more, but it may also mean not as much revenue for the province. Like, because what the province gets out of, well, if they go to what they're talking about, a fully um, privatized wholesale system as well, the main uh, benefit to the province would be excise taxes, right? Um, because the, right now the province is the wholesale distributor to the shop, the stores, the privately run stores, as well as the, the province is the retailer to the online. So this is, so the Ontario Cannabis Store or the Ontario Cannabis Retail Corporation, yes. which is, I guess, sort of the same thing, uh, yeah. we're, we're supposed to run the stores. Uh, obviously, they're out of the bricks and mortar business yes. as it's all private now, but they're still supplying all the product, correct? Yes. So everything still has to go through them. They just don't have the stores. Yeah, it goes through a big wholesale um, distributor in um, out, a distribution. Center. Very similar to the LCBO would type of thing, right? Yeah. Ex- except yeah. private owners as opposed to LCBO outlets. Yes. yes. So uh, they're talking about considering alternative models. What would that mean? Where, what do you think? Where do you think this is going? Well, it sounds like the main uh, model is to have a private private wholesale distribution. Um, so other companies would be licensed to do the distribution to the stores. Um, so they would, uh, I guess, buy the product or contract to have the product from the licensed producers. 
um, in their they would have them in their wholesale um, warehouses, and then they would be distributed out. And this is also it's not I think the only issue is not that there has been a loss this year. It's also that the next thing coming is edibles, and some edibles are going to have a lot of space. Uh, requirements, right? Because you're talking about beverages, for example, consumables, right. I guess we should call them. Right. Um, and, you know, a bottle of something cannabis-infused, non, it's not called wine because you're not allowed to call it wine if it's got right. cannabis in it, um, will be bigger and heavier than uh, an ounce of... Right, yeah, right? it requires more space, yeah, obviously. and they're yeah. already full, apparently, at the warehouse, the Ontario warehouse. So there's that issue as well, but because of the timing of the, 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 the loss announcement... Uh, it can, they can maybe, I don't know if they're intentionally making this because of the, the financial uh, issue or if it's just a coincidence that it's right. happening at the same time. So why would they get out of the uh, distribution business? Because uh, well, it would like seem to said, me, I mean, it, would, it would seem to be that that would be harder to police. I mean, we're hearing situations now of people growing stuff that they're not supposed to be growing. Does this keep more of a handle on it when it is a provincial, a provincial distribution system? I guess it would, but the question would be whether or not it's... I mean, yes, it would keep more of a handle on it, but whether there's really a need for that handle. If you're licensing someone to do this, they have a financial stake in not breaking the law, right? Because right? they'll lose the license. You pull the license, yeah. It's going to be lucrative. Right. Um, but if you if you run it yourself, you know, you're, you still have to, you know, do internal oversight and stuff like that, but you at least know. I mean, the, the, the retailers are not the same people who are necessarily going to be policing it. You know, like the LCBO sells and it also polices, but sometimes, you know, there's people who deal with buying the product and there's people who deal with assessing the product and things like that, right? But... It is definitely keeps everything in house when when you run it yourself. But like I said, if you license it, and uh, those people have a financial incentive not to um, yeah. screw up, they certainly will be an issue, uh, continuing issue around the labeling, legal labeling, and all of that stuff that's coming from the licensed producers. Uh, so it will just ha- have more hands in it as far as more people benefiting from it, more people involved, and there will be the um, cost value, the, the cost benefits of of the government not running, like you said earlier, the bricks and mortar of, of warehousing, let someone else take that cost, and then the government would just reap the benefits of, say, excise, and they don't have to deal with logistics as much and staffing and all of that stuff in the, the warehousing. Um, are other provinces doing this where, uh, where private uh, distributors uh, control it or distribute the product? Um, I think it's different in each province. I, I haven't dug enough into it to 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 answer that question in any satisfactory way. Um, but as you know, say for example, Alberta has been at the forefront of. Interestingly enough, they've they've issued more licenses and have seen more sales, much higher sales in a province one third the population of Ontario. Right. Um, and I'm. Pr- I, I, I can't say whether it was it, it, whether they run the warehousing themselves, but they've had they've had a much more firmly privatized system. At the, so the why would warehousing or the distribution system um, that that part seems pretty simple? It's it's the retail yeah. outlet that would make it difficult. So how would yeah. this make their system more efficient? Uh, I, I I don't know. Yeah. I, I I suspect that it is as you said. You know they're not. It's the ideal of privatization, right, where someone else takes on a lot of the risk around the costs 
right. running the business and hiring the staff and all that stuff. Um, so that would make from the government side more efficient, right? The government is just you know, licensing, inspecting, doing all the stuff that governments do like that, and then they're less involved in the business. I don't think there was any question of the OCS online system mm. still being run by the government, um, but that is, you know, that will be the extent of it. This is going to make the LCBO look archaic. <laughs> yeah, but it's interesting because we still have the the brewer's warehousing system, right? Yeah, exactly. So it's it's like that in one sense where you have a private warehouser that is inspected and licensed and all of that stuff. But the difference is you've got um, it's a separate company. I, well, maybe it wouldn't be a separate company. I don't know if maybe they would look at the license. Because, yeah, the Brewers Retail yeah. is a separate private mm-hmm. distribution company, very similar to the LCBO, but the yes. LCBO is public. Yes, yes. So it could be. So it's not like we don't have it here no, already, no. yeah. Yeah, and, and that was dev- designed precisely, be- well, actually, it was designed for two reasons. One was because of the bulk of beer. Uh, compared to say whiskey, uh, you know, alcohol percentage and all of that stuff, mm-hmm. but also because, ironically, at the beginning of um, legal sales after prohibition, there were it, it was a way of redirecting a lot of the customers so that the liquor stores weren't full with huge lineups and running right. product, right? But what what could be, I mean, what I haven't seen any talk about is maybe the licensed producers would create their own warehousing system. Would it have to be separate from? say, some kind of cooperative warehouse housing system of the licensed producers, and then down the road we end up with a beer store version of yeah. cannabis. Right? And, and especially when you're saying that producers can't have retail stores. That almost seems like, well, yeah. why have that now? Why not just let them do it then? Well, yeah, yeah, and, and maybe that's, I don't know. That's we're, coming up, We're getting yeah. in the realm of speculation, but if we yeah. follow sort of the model of... So this is going to be anything yeah. except the LCBO when you think about it. Yeah, yeah, and and that's yeah, it's it's it, it, there's something about the optics of it versus the actual practical economics of it, and and it's really hard to tease those two apart because does the government want to be involved in this? Do, would some people be more comfortable with the government being the re, uh, involved all the way through because there's a sense that the government, like you said, would be following the rules better? It it you're dealing with all di- sorts of different perceptions of the government's role in our lives. And the government's role as a regulator and the government's role as a, as a vendor, right? It just seems odd that considering how much control the Ontario government has had over liquor distribution, mm-hmm. beer distribution over the last several decades, yeah. that they're going to open this up. It just seems yeah. odd. It just, it's like you'd think they'd open up the other one first and then this one. Yeah, and, and I think part of that is because uh, it, it, what's interesting about that is that when the federal government created the, the Cannabis Act, uh, it was intentional. There was an intentional um, push to allow, and this is also constitutional, to allow the provinces to manage the retail system in a way that seemed to suit what the people in that province were used to, right? And normally you would look to alcohol for the other intoxicant that is vended uh, in the province. But in Ontario, because we had a change of governments with a very different philosophy of this, they're kind of able to experiment a bit with a different way of doing it, right? So because it's, it was sort of a clean slate, um, sort of brushed over by the alcohol system, right. they can kind of play with it, right? So it's, it's, uh, if it was addressed in that way, let's find a better and more efficient way of dealing with this, that might then 
uh, have an echo effect into liquor later. Because right? mm. we know that you, it has to eventually, does it not? Because if you're in the liquor industry, you're going, "What are we jumping through hoops for?" Yeah. And these people don't have to. Yeah, and and, the and we've thing, talked about that before. Yeah, and cannabis is is seen by many people as more dangerous, but it's it's not like physically more dangerous, but yeah. it's seen more dangerous because of its connection with um, yeah. the criminal networks. Yeah. So, um, so it might be that you kind of work it out with this product that's not physically more dangerous, but it's got a lot more negative associations, and then you can smooth the way for booze. Um, uh, the article says Ontario officials are expected to consult with industry and other stakeholders in the coming weeks on potential alternative delivery models, sources told the Canadian press. That certainly does sound like they're privatizing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the idea, uh, the delivery model, I, I, you know, unless, I mean, I think we're reading the same article. It's the del- delivery model yeah. is the wholesale delivery model, right? Yeah. So do you just allow private uh, companies to get involved in that and um, the the province gets out of the the, the business of distributing um, the physical product except through the mail. Does that affect, uh, we heard recently that they were going to open more outlets. I don't even know yeah. when the date is now. I can't remember. But it, d- does this affect any of that? Will anything new be in place by the time these other outlets open up, or is it just more the same? Um, I don't think so. I know that when uh, there were... The outlet issue has been hampered by the those few people. I think there are about ten license oh, right. receivers, who, people who received a license who then took, or who didn't, who then took the government right. to court, and that was just thrown out. Right. Um, and but that had put a, a freeze on the just the issuing of licenses. That will probably right. be more of an issue. I don't think that this is going to affect that at all because it's retail versus wholesale. Surprise! We're still seeing the lottery system being used yeah. here. Do you think that will change? You think that'll be part of the changes? Yeah, I don't, the lottery system baffles me because it's the least effective way to yeah. do a good control system, right? Because I mean, the first in the first lottery distribution, there was one license for Toronto and three for Ottawa, mm. right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and there were none for Guelph, which is you know, I mean, it's Guelph, right? Mm-hmm. Like, where's it going to be? Cannabis, sorry, Guelph, but you know, I love you guys. But, and Windsor, there was none for Windsor. So, so you don't do it that way if you want to do it in a way that is. Uh, that follows kind of the principles that they were looking to follow, harm reduction, you know, intervening in a black market by creating a, a legal system. Um, so, so I don't know why they're still doing it, except that it seems, I guess, to some people, fairer than having the government involved in yeah. it. Or it might be from the government side, we don't want to have an administration to make these decisions because they're too politically loaded. Like, look what happened in, was it Scarborough? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I guess there's pros and cons to both, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. It's, well, it's pros and cons for the government. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's right. Well, <laughs> I'd say the customer is different. The lottery system for the everyday people. Yeah. So how will, when edit? we've only got about a minute left here, okay. how much, uh, once edibles come onto the market, how is this going to change the game? Oh, it's going to change it fundamentally. I mean, we've seen a lot of uh, increase in, uh, what do they call it, Canna- first-time cannabis users is a clever name for it, I can't remember. Um, but uh, that's, I would be very surprised if that doesn't in- increase significantly, A, because people don't, who don't smoke want to try it, but B, because it's a different kind of ingestion and it does affect you differently. Uh, so there might be some positive or negative differences in that, so both in the use and in possibly the people's perception of cannabis's effects will change. So the stores that are already out there will just now carry these products? Um, 
I, I think that's the plan. Because what I'm trying to visualize here is a uh, melding a Walmart and the old LCBO where my dad used to have to fill out a pad before he went in. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. What, what is that going to look like? Oh, yeah, it's going to look like a very big version of that thing you just described. <laughs> it's like because these are food products. Yeah, yeah, food and drink products, yeah. So I, it sounds like it will be the same kind of system. Um, the yeah, it's going to need a bit of a shakedown for that because this is a whole new world, right? Dan Malik has been with us, health sciences professor, Brock University. Dan, as always, thanks for the time, much appreciated. Thanks a lot. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to three on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.